Good morning. Uh, so I was planning on doing the Second uh, Kings lesson today, um, but the classes that uh, I had this past week in Alabama um, put this lesson in my mind that I've been thinking about for quite some time. Um, I've wanted for a while now um, to focus a lot more on fundamental things related to our faith, related to our relationship with God. And um, what I want to start doing is just starting almost from like the ground up and starting to build the, the just basis of a foundation and just start building with these lessons uh, just more and more of a foundation. So um, Lord willing, we'll do Second Kings uh, chapter 6 next Sunday. Um, and we'll still do First Timothy um, chapter 6 here in the near future, but I really want to focus on fundamentals for a while. And if you want to turn to John 17, verse 3, um, this is going to serve as the basis for this lesson and really all of these lessons in terms of fundamentals. Um, Jesus' prayer in John 17 is just extraordinarily significant. He basically outlines in this prayer Everything involved with God's purpose, with everything he's ever done, everything he's ever said. And again, this is going to serve as like a cornerstone of direction for this lesson and the coming lessons. Um, So you'll see the title of the lesson is just Holy Bible. So like Devin said, I'm going to be teaching some general things uh, on what the Bible is and trying to give uh, a focus for that. And really... We're going to see this in the text here in John 17, that the idea of why we have the Bible, what's the purpose of this book that we have? The whole purpose, if I were just to simplify it in one simple sentence, the Bible teaches us how to identify God. So it's God identifying himself, and it's us learning how to identify ourselves with God. It's for us to seek that, to be drawn to that, and to want to forsake everything else we could possibly identify with and just identify with God. Look at John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Just think about this really quick. Um, if somebody were to ask you, like, what is eternal life? You may say, well, that's heaven. I mean, that's being with God in heaven. Um, you may say it's like relief, like eternal relief, rest from suffering. It's interesting that when Jesus speaks explicitly, almost like in a dictionary way about eternal life, he says eternal life is actually to know God and to know Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And it's interesting that he mentions the only true God. Um, Look at verse 20 and 21 of this chapter. This is where it's more identifying with God as a mission says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, and that's like his immediate disciples. It says, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. And so he continues to expound on that statement um, in different ways through the end of his prayer. But the idea is God is trying to draw us to identify with himself. And what I'd like to do this morning is just demonstrate how the Bible as a whole is entirely written, centered on that purpose. So we're going to start with some just general things about what the Bible is just factually. So this first point is just what is the Bible? And I'll be following just very closely with the outline if you have an outline. 
Um, so the Bible is actually, it's never called Bible. It's never called Holy Bible in the text itself. That's just a designation given to it. And I, I want to define why on like the front of your Bible, mine doesn't say Holy Bible in the front, but your prob- yours probably does. Um, the word holy means to be set apart, like separated. Uh, God is called holy in his word. Um, God sets aside things and people as holy. It's the idea of not just being set apart, but set apart for a designated and defined purpose. So if something is, is holy, it means that there's a reason why this has been set apart, and there's something exclusive about why this person or thing, why this thing exists, what it's supposed to be used for. Bible comes from the Latin word biblia, probably not, not pronouncing that correctly, but biblia means books, like library, basically. So the reason why the, the Bible is called Bible, the reason why it's called a holy Bible, is this is a volume of various writings that are set apart for a specific purpose. And I would argue um, and put forward that in John 17, 3 and verse 20 and 21, that Jesus speaks of why the Bible is holy. Why is it set apart? What's its purpose? The purpose is to identify God as the true God, the only God, and Jesus Christ to be sent. But with that, the purpose of the Bible, it is set apart as a tool to equip us to understand how do we identify ourselves with this true God, right? So it's a collection of 66 volumes of writing. I haven't necessarily called them books because some of the books of the Bible are like one page. (laughs) So it's kind of hard to qualify that as like a book in my mind. But it's 66 volumes of writing that are unified within that one specific purpose. Um, There are 39 volumes of writing in the Old Testament. There are 27 volumes of writing in the New Testament. These are very diverse kinds of writings. You have poetry, wisdom, you have apocalyptic illustrative writing, which is almost like watching a movie uh, in action. You have narrative, um, you have the heights of joy being expressed, you have the depths of grief being expressed, every emotion, love and intimacy, anger, conflict, power, conquering, national division, national conflict. You have all of these various subjects that constitute what Peter says is everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything in God's word covers every single realm of all things related to life pertaining to godliness. Um, So sometimes you even have like Ecclesiastes, just somebody contemplating life in view of what life is in relation to identifying with God. And in Ecclesiastes, the writer is just trying to figure out, is it worth identifying with anything in this life except God? And so he tries to identify himself with, with wealth, pleasure, wisdom, and he finds conclusively that if you examine everything to its concrete conclusion, what you find is nothing satisfies the design that God has put within us to ultimately identify exclusively with him, right? So this is written over a period of 1,600 years. Not that the history of the Bible is only 1,600 years, but from the time that the Bible was beginning to be written. So like the time of Moses 
to the conclusion of the New Testament writings is about a 1,600-year span of writing. 66 different volumes of writing over a 1,600-year span of writing. Um, that spanned three continents. We're going to talk a lot more about how the writings of this series of books, these volumes, are historically grounded, and that's a matter of incredible significance, actually. But if you look on your outline, um, under point B, number two, these, these, these volumes of writing were collected and organized in Asia, Africa, Europe, very diverse cultures in very diverse times from a very diverse series of authors. So because of that, you have three different languages that these volumes were written in. Uh, one, one language was the Hebrew language. Most of the Old Testament, these 39 volumes that are before Jesus, most of those are written in Hebrew with some Aramaic. And the New Testament was also written in Aramaic and Greek. Greek was the language in the Roman Empire. And Konea Greek was the language specifically that's like frozen in that time frame so that the Bible in the New Testament sense is very translatable with great confidence. Um, the 40 authors, the over 40 authors is very interesting as well. It's people like kings, government officials, you have shepherds, priests, you have a tax collector, fishermen, a rabbi, a doctor, and just all sorts of different people who, again, spoke different languages, were separated from each other by great differences of time, great differences of culture, different governments, different kinds of practices around them, different kinds of practices that they involved themselves in, different laws from God that they were under, and yet all of these different people, whoever they were, are unified together in this umbrella of God identifying himself through their writings and unifying these writings together to cause a people to seek to identify with him. So the preservation of the Bible is also unlike any other document ever written, by far. Just take into account, again, this is 66 different volumes of writing preserved through time. Just one great evidence of this, if you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, these are, these are scrolls that it, in about 1947, these scrolls were found about 13 miles east of Jerusalem, so in the Judean area. In a series of caves, these uh, scrolls were found in these jars. And in these jars, what they found is they found complete copies of nearly every book of the Bible, either by various fragments or in entire scrolls. They found at least portions or full copies of every single volume of the Old Testament writing except for the book of Esther. And we'll talk more about why that's important, but the copies of those manuscripts goes back to about 250 B.C. So that would be nearly 300 years before Jesus ever came into the world. They had these writings and were copying them. The reason that that is also significant is what they've found as they've translated these writings is that they match remarkably the later manuscripts that we had uh, before those were discovered but were written much later. So it proved that these Old Testament writings are accurate portrayals of the original writings, right? Just kind of sealed that case just a little bit more strongly with how old these manuscripts are. Uh, they found over 30 copies of the book of Psalms, just a massive collection of writings in the Psalms, 30 copies of the Psalms, a lot of opportunity for cross-referencing for accuracy, 
um, over 30 copies of Deuteronomy, over 20 copies of Genesis, over 20 copies of Isaiah. And again, it's going to be significant for another point that we're going to be making here. Um, why is this important? This is going to push us into the rest of the lesson. Turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Um, I'm going to put forward that these facts alone, all, all by themselves, just these short things we've discussed, prove in an absolute sense that Jesus indefinitely came into the world. He indefinitely suffered on the cross and he indefinitely rose from the dead in history. And just these facts alone, they prove that, I think, irrefutably. And we're just simply left whether we accept these things or not. Luke 24, verse 27. These are just remarkable, wild things that are said here in these verses in Luke 24. Two men on the road to Emmaus talk to Jesus without knowing that it's him. And as they're walking along the road, they don't know yet that Jesus has risen. They've heard it, but they don't believe it. Uh, Jesus has died uh, before this, and they're consumed with grief over this. And in verse 25, he rebukes them for not believing the rumor of his resurrection. And in verse 27, it says, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in some of the scriptures. No, it's all the scriptures. Look at verse 44 through 47. He again appears to his disciples another time. And in verse 44, it says, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So here's where we're going to take the rest of this lesson, right? There's obviously a lot of things to say about what the Bible is, but I think from God's direction, you know, when he's pointing the arrows, here's where we land as the most central theme of what the Bible is. The, the, if we're going to summarize a purpose for scripture, here it is identifying God and identifying with him. So what makes Jesus' words so important, understanding that a little more specifically, I'm just going to read what I have on the board here. I know it's kind of a mouthful, but all of this is very important. The Old Testament collection, as we have it, historically because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we just factually know this. Absolutely. The Old Testament collection predates Jesus. Period. And that Old Testament collection which predated Jesus, it identified him before he came into history. It identified Jerusalem as the place in history that he would come. It identified how God would establish an eternal kingdom with Jesus, starting with the Jews in Jerusalem in history. It established how his reign would spread in history after his coming and how all the nations would identify with him by faith from that time on forever. That was already established in the collective writings of the Old Testament. Already established. And what you have in history is there was a place, Jerusalem, in history where there was a temple, where there was a priesthood, 
where there, the Jewish people from all over the world would come and worship God in that place. And in that place, they were striving to keep the laws it was written. And all of that is just historical certainty. That's it. And again, I'm going to put forward that these facts alone prove in an absolute sense Jesus came into the world, suffered in the world, rose from the dead in the world, and ascended to heaven in an absolute, historically certain way. So I want to actually use the Bible to show you this. Um, Because again, these are the expectations that the Old Testament sets to identify God and to teach us how to identify with him. Um, So I just want to center the rest of the lesson, Jesus in Jerusalem. This lesson is going to be focused more on the Old Testament than the New. We'll get more into the New Testament in future lessons. The New Testament is more identifying with God now that Christ fully identified God and fully identified himself. So we can take that as a springboard from here. These scriptures, you don't need to turn there. I'm going to try to kind of give a canvas And we are going to turn in our Bible to some passages in a moment, but I want this to kind of outline where we're going. So I'm just going to point out some things in these verses to try to walk you through, again, Jesus and Jerusalem. Jesus said the Old Testament was deliberately pointing that he would be revealed and come into Jerusalem in history, suffer there, rise from the dead there, and from there on out, the, the proclamation of repentance would spread to all nations. Genesis 3, verse 15, the first curse given was given to Satan when man sinned against God and fell. Uh, A famous promise there is, I will put enmity between you and the woman, God speaking to Satan, between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. The idea is this, this person would come from this woman and he would accomplish this work of crushing the head of Satan And in the act of being crushed, in the act, he would also bruise the heel of the one crushing him, right? So the power of Satan, the power of sin, the kingdom of Satan, God was predicting that his power, his kingdom, and sin would be fully overcome by this one who would come from the woman. Genesis 49.10. Later at the end of the book of Genesis, uh, Jacob, speaking to his children, says says to Judah, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Hundreds of years before a king ever was established, even before they were even a nation, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Shiloh is kind of an ambiguous word, but to my understanding, it means a man of peace would come, an establisher of peace. And between these, in Genesis chapter 12, I don't have this one on the board, but God would tell Abraham that this specific land of Canaan that Abraham would wander within would be the place where these promises would find their fulfillment. 2 Samuel chapter 7. From Judah, we eventually have David, this man of peace. And David, in Jerusalem, from Judah, in the place promised to Abraham, God says to him, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so again, before Jesus ever came into the world, this, this was written down. This is a promise that the Jewish nation scattered in all the world in the time of Jesus 
they were anchoring themselves in the hope of these promises that they knew were not completed in their lifetime. From there, we have the book of Isaiah, written again a long period after David came. A promise is made through Isaiah, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and that is David's father, Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, if that sounds familiar. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. The idea is this man from David, this branch, he's going to come and all the nations are going to want to identify themselves with him. And he'll stand as this signal that's going to branch out. And all nations are going to want to take refuge in him. Right? In Zechariah chapter 6, this is now at the close of the New Testament, or the Old Testament period, rather. Zechariah is one of the final books of the Old Testament. And he's living in the time frame we're studying in our Bible class in Ezra. And in Zechariah chapter 6, Zechariah, um, speaking a message specifically to the high priest of his day, the high priest, says, Take silver and gold, make an ornate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, just pause for a second, time out. Why was this unusual? Why would it be unusual to set a crown on the head of the high priest? We've already looked, Judah is the tribe for the kings. There weren't kings that came from the priests because the priests were separated by tribe from Judah. That was the tribe of Levi, right? So this is very, very unusual. But note what he continues to say. Then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is Branch. Look back at Isaiah. From the stem of Jesse, a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And continuing, for he will branch out from where he is. He will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord. And he who will bear the honor, and he will uh, bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne. The council of peace will be between the two offices. The reason I bring all of these things up, Jerusalem was not just the place where the king reigned. It was the place where the high priest worked with the temple. And the initial promise of Genesis 3 was that sin and the power of Satan would be conquered and undone. The promise of Genesis 49 was that a king would rule. A king's role was to deliver, it was to judge, it was to save and rescue, it was to defeat the enemies of God's people, it was to give them safety and security and to deliver law. The priest's role was not quite that. The priest's role was atonement for sin. It was intercession. It was to bring God to the people and to bring the people to God. It was to teach God's law. It was to work to help, to pe- help the people to see their need for God's mercy by the shedding of blood and sacrifice. And so in Genesis 3, we have a priestly promise, the work of Satan being undone. In Genesis 49, we have a king's promise. So what I'd like to do, having that as a canvas... I'd like to consider Melchizedek in Genesis 14, 18 through 20. And this will be the passages that we follow for the rest of our lesson. And this is still just focusing very simply Jesus and Jerusalem. That's it. That's all we're focusing on. Jesus and Jerusalem. And how in Luke 24, Jesus said that the Old Testament and what it was expressing is that the Christ would come into the city of Jerusalem within history. 
and that he would rule from Jerusalem and gain an eternal kingdom to then rule forever in heaven. So starting in Genesis chapter 14, Genesis chapter 14, 18 through 20. Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20. It says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him a tenth of all. So do you get any like signals of great significance there? Um, I don't. This is a very small event in the midst of a more important narrative, it seems. Abram is the center of God's story here. The narrative is following Abraham and how God is keeping his covenant with Abraham. Abram here has just rescued his nephew Lot from the kings who had kidnapped him and were battling together. And just kind of seemingly out of nowhere comes this priest of God who is also a king named Melchizedek. You'll notice I have on the board and in the outline, Psalm 76 verse 2 notes Salem as Jerusalem. So this man, Melchizedek, was reigning as priest and king in the ancient city of Jerusalem. And what we'll find is all of, all of these events are very significant, but these are literally the only verses in the entire Bible that speak about this man until Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Um, and I just want to point out, if you keep your finger in Genesis 14, I mean, just look at like the writing difference. There's been a lot that's been written between these two, uh, these two sections of scripture, right? Genesis 14 is at the very beginning. You have the whole historical narrative of God's working with his people through the Old Testament without ever bringing up Melchizedek again. You have all sorts of various writings and the prophets. They never mention Melchizedek again. Every single psalm, except for this one psalm, never speaks about Melchizedek. There's no other mention of Melchizedek anywhere except right here. And Psalm 110 is the most quoted passage in the entire New Testament. It is one of the most clearly messianic, prophetic passages of the entire Old Testament. And it is consistently quoted as pointing to Jesus as the Messiah the Old Testament was pointing to, the King. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power and holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among nations. Just stop there. So verses 1 and 2 tend to be the most quoted section of this psalm in the New Testament. But then you kind of have verse 4 all of a sudden that makes this very unusual promise. The promise is that this Lord that the psalmist is speaking of would also be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now what that tells me is I've missed something, right? What this is saying is this Melchizedek back in Genesis 14 that somehow his priesthood was like open to future inheritance and that there were qualifications that somebody would meet to inherit it again. 
You know, and you go back to Genesis 14 and you read it and you're like, okay, I, well, I mean, I don't know what's going on, but I don't notice any qualifications anywhere or any way that this could be inherited. And so you're just kind of left in mystery here, right? And in Hebrews chapter 7, that's the next place we're going to go. Hebrews chapter 7, nothing else is said in the New Testament at all except in the book of Hebrews and most specifically in chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 7. And I just want you to, again, just kind of look at the volume of writing in your Bible. This is a massive volume of writing that, again, separates these passages, right? And we know because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Hebrew writer, whoever it was, was clearly in a different time. He was clearly a different person, and he was clearly separated from whoever wrote Genesis and the Psalms. He was separated by time and by culture. So this is not only a large volume of writing, but it's a large volume of time that is separating these writings from one another. And I just want you to consider the incredible nature of how the Hebrew writer points out Jesus fulfilling all of these things, which again centers on Jesus and Jerusalem. Hebrews chapter 17. Here's what we're going to point out. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. So the Hebrew writer makes the point that actually, what we're going to see is everything about Melchizedek, everything about the way he interacted with Abraham, those are the qualifications for this priesthood that Jesus was said to inherit. First couple things is Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. Jesus is a king of righteousness and can inherit that name because Jesus lived a perfect life in righteousness. His sacrifice proves that his heart, his intentions, were always perfectly consistent with God's intentions in everything that he did. Salem means peace. And that's another qualification. That in order to inherit the priesthood of Melchizedek, one must be then a king of peace. Jesus is a king of peace. Because Jesus, a battered reed he would not break, a smoldering wick he would not extinguish, like a sheep is silent before its shearers, so Jesus was silent before those who were crucifying him. Jesus was not only a man of peace, but his sacrifice created the way for peace. Jesus uniquely, because of his life, because of his sacrifice, is the only person qualified ever to be truly called the king of peace. Not only that, in verses 4 through 10, we're not going to read this, but it talks about how uh, Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek while Melchizedek blessed Abram. And in verse 6, it makes the point that uh, Abram, who had the promises of God, was the one being blessed by Melchizedek in verse 7, but without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. So the fact that Melchizedek blessed Abram is another requirement. That the fact that Melchizedek existed outside of Abraham's lineage and outside of who Abraham was, the man who would inherit this priesthood would need to be somebody outside of the lineage to Abram. And do you, do you see and do you understand how Jesus was outside of the lineage of Abram? It gets back to verse 3. 
that Melchizedek has no traceable physical genealogy. I don't think the point is that Melchizedek was like a true um, living form of Jesus in some way, just that the way it's written down was sufficient to typify these things. But you can't trace Melchizedek's lineage backwards or forwards. He has no beginning of days, no end of life. So in, in a type, it's like he's like the son of God who remains a priest perpetually. So Jesus having no beginning, being God, and because by his resurrection he has no end of life, he is uniquely qualified again to inherit the order of this priesthood that existed outside of Abraham's lineage and the Levites, making him greater, being the means through which all justification comes. Um, Look at verses 14 through 16 as well. Verses 14 through 16. Mentions, For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clear still, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirements, but according to the power of an indestructible life. So because you never see Melchizedek's life ending, in, again, a typified sense, his life just seems to go on. And Jesus, because of his resurrection and because of the proof that his life is indestructible, is, in, is able then to inherit his priesthood perpetually. Now, I want you to just let all of this sink in really quick. In Genesis 3 or Genesis 14, rather, you have these three verses that just speak of Melchizedek within a narrative. There's no parentheses that say, hey, pay attention. This is important. All of these are going to be qualifications for a new priesthood one day. It's it's as if you can actually read that the author had no deliberate intention of understanding why that wasn't as important as it was. And the psalmist picking up on that hundreds of years later, writing this prophetic picture of the Messiah just introduces this prophecy that that priesthood would be the very priesthood, this king of ancient Jerusalem would be inherited by the Messiah. And then separated by time and culture again, this Hebrew writer sees how all of these things were fulfilled so that Jesus could live under the realm of God's word qualified for a new priesthood. Look at verse 12. I want to show you another verse that speaks to why this is important. For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. That there can be a new law, a new covenant, explicitly because there exists a new priesthood. The reason why that's important, these tribes were separated. Zechariah prophesied that in Judah were the kings, but yet somehow this king that would come, this branch that was prophesied, was going to have a crown on his head and there would be peace between the office of king and priest. That was impossible. And yet the Old Testament expressing an expectation of who this Messiah would be, that Jerusalem in history would be the place where God would establish his king that Jerusalem would be a place where God would have his Messiah be both a king and priest interceding for his people. That this Redeemer would have not only an eternal priesthood, but an eternal kingship, right? And all of this is provable through the Old Testament scriptures that existed before Jesus even, um, even if it's just um, speculation, 
that Jesus came into the world, all of this existed in the expectation of the Jewish people before Jesus ever came. Look at verses 23 through 25, and again, why this is so important. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Did you catch what this is all about? That all of this was necessary so that we could identify ourselves with God. That the reason why God was setting these expectations, the purpose for Jerusalem, the purpose for Jesus coming into Jerusalem, all of these physical things and these components of what the Jewish nation was at that time all serve to help us to understand the kind of people we are as we identify with Jesus as a king and priest reigning forever, starting at the time period of Jerusalem as it existed in the Roman Empire. Um, so that's, that's just where I want to stop as far as painting this picture of what the Bible is and what makes the Bible such a focused, woven series of volumes on this one focused purpose of expressing God's identity and expressing a method in a way through Jesus for us to identify with him. I think one of the applications is we need to learn to love and revere God's word. We have this massive volume of writings that have prophetic pictures of the Messiah put together in a way it clearly cannot have been from the mind of man. There is not even any possibility at all that the writer of Genesis, the writer of the Psalms, and the writer of Hebrews could have ever had in their mind a way of themselves to understand how this was all going to come together. And yet Jesus, because of exactly the life that he lived, because of exactly the way that he died, where he died, when he died, the people who crucified him, the fact that he raised from the dead, and the fact that he ascended into heaven to rule forever, all of those things that were anticipated in the Old Testament but unknown to the Jewish people, all of those things are necessary components of why we are able to have the faith that we have today. So we simply need to love God's word. And how intimately we wish to identify ourselves with God shows how much we understand the glory of what these volumes of writings really are. That these are teaching us not just factual, informative things, but everything that we read deepens my understanding of God's character and glory, the greatness of who he is, the the majesty of his person, but it deepens my understanding of how to bring everything in my life into an identifiable position with his glory. Is that what you're seeking? Then this book is for you. My approach to God's word reflects my approach to God and his son. John chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus is called the word. The word was with God and the word was God. How I approach God's word, my love for God's word, my adherence to it, reflects my love for God and my attitude toward God. Authority. We've been looking how in Jerusalem, one of the purposes of that place historically was the Jewish people were anticipating a king to come. God's word expresses the kingship of Jesus. How eager we are to surrender ourselves to his kingship, to study God's word, to seek obedience to him, and to keep everything we do under the realm of his authority again reflects whether or not we truly believe who God has revealed himself to be. We must be a people who love the subject of God's authority. 
But my final application, the final point, God's word presents the greatest case for Jesus. Um, Colossians chapter 2 warns against philosophies and other things of men. Um, Science and philosophy can be helpful. Um, The gospel appeals, though. The gospel as it's written. It appeals to the kind of person God is seeking, right? I think there can be a temptation because of the unbelief of the world that I've got to learn science. I've got to be able to argue the Bible scientifically with people. This might sound prude and simplistic. I don't believe that. I don't think we've got to be able to debate with the best of them. I don't think I've got to learn philosophical arguments and know how to turn people's arguments around brilliantly. And, you know, it's simple. The gospel is the power of God. Jesus either came into the world or he didn't, period. There's nothing better than that. Either Jesus did come to Jerusalem or he didn't. And let me ask you this. How is it that in Jerusalem, where people were expecting a Messiah, but where people viewed the preaching of Christ as blasphemy to the point of death penalty, how is it that randomly the teaching of Jesus exploded in that place in exactly the time predicted in the Old Testament. How is it people were randomly willing to just uniformly die for that faith in that place? How is it that then that message was so zealously brought, not only within the walls of Jerusalem, but rapidly just spreading everywhere in the Roman Empire, where not only in Jerusalem was it punishable by death, but in the Roman Empire... It was seen as blasphemy against the emperor and punishable by death to claim that anyone was God but Caesar. How does that happen in history? How does a religion take over the world so rapidly that was persecuted so strongly in its time? Right? We've got to understand this is a solid, irrefutable case. Either these things happened in history or they didn't, and if they did, we've got to do something about it. Our job is to confront people with the fact These things have happened, and so Jesus reigns in heaven. So 1 Corinthians, Paul makes the point of the Corinthians, the power of God is in the gospel. Where is the wise man? Where is the great debater of this age? We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, right? So the appeal of this lesson is to not change the gospel into a philosophical argument. Don't change the gospel into a scientific argument. Preach Jesus. Live Jesus out and you will find people willing to listen and those are the people that God is seeking, right? Um, so that's, that's the lesson. The invitation, Jesus is indefinitely ruling in heaven. Our faith is absolutely not blind. Our faith is based on the fact that God changed history forever. That he had an insurmountable of evidence through which we've barely scratched the surface that indefinitely in Jerusalem, in the place where all the Jews would come together, that Jesus would come as a king and die and reign forever in heaven. Because he reigns, God is calling all men to repent in view of the fact that if Christ rose from the dead, he will come again in judgment. And not one man will be able to escape accountability to that judgment. If you're here and you have not considered the facts of Christ coming into the world, Jesus can come at any time. And God will call the world into judgment, and he is the examiner of hearts. If you are not willing to obey, and you know the potential of God's wrath against you, it is because you have a hard heart, and God will judge you for it. And he's offering repentance. 
through his son. If there's anything we can do for you, come and bring it forward at this time while we stand in sight.